Well, greetings, everyone. I think it's been a difficult week for many of us, and that's why I think we need to focus in for just a few minutes, if we can, eliminate distractions, and let's dial into God's Word uh, together. Shall we listen to the message of the Scriptures? And if we can really get into the zone today, I think we're going to hear a story that takes place in a big city that has little interest in the message of the gospel. And we're going to meet a number of characters who, in various ways, we can learn from. And what we're going to notice here is a strategy, a strategy for meeting people where they're at and being able to share something of the hope that we have as believers in the long-promised Messiah and the truth that enables us to cope even in chaotic circumstances and that empowers us to know that God is real and walks with us in the midst of cultural upheaval, even in the worst kinds of circumstances. You and I can have a quiet confidence that God is leading us, leading us on a journey of discipleship. So turn with me, if you don't mind, in your Bible to the second half of Acts chapter 18 as we're going to continue our series that we picked up, uh, or left off rather, just before Christmas. And as you're turning there, I need to ask you a question. Listen, have you ever known someone for quite some time, and then all of a sudden you find out something about them, something new and exciting, something that you didn't know before, sort of this revelation? I used to work with this other professor who was a historian, a tall guy, about 6'4", um, good at sports, but, but a real geek when it came to history. You know, he was a history prof for a reason, really got into things that most of us, um, you know, needed to be persuaded uh, were cool and interesting. So, anyway, one day I go out in the parking lot, and I see this guy's car, and sticking out from under it are these long legs, and, and it's, it's this professor. He's in, he's down, he's working on his car, and I just, you know, kind of asked him, dude, what, what's going on? And he explained in complex ways that he had this problem with his brake line, and he was fixing it. And I said, how do you know how to, how to do that? I mean, that's crazy. You're a geeky historian. And he said, oh, I used to be an auto mechanic. Uh, why, why wouldn't you have told me that? Well, you didn't ask. That's true, I didn't. I did not know that about you. And it's curious, ever since we've arrived in Europe in Acts chapter 16, we've discovered a couple of interesting things that we didn't know previously about the Apostle Paul. Starting with number one, he's a Roman citizen, and that's a big deal. He holds a Roman passport, and that confers great status, and it's quite a valuable commodity in the ancient world. And that's why it's interesting that it hasn't come up previously in the story. And Paul only refers to it both in Acts 16 and then again later in the story when it's absolutely necessary. And you get the sense that he puts it on, uh, on the down low. He doesn't make a big deal of his Roman citizenship because the message that he's bringing to Europe, it's not about status. It's not about being an Instagram influencer. It's not about anything that kind of the world is impressed by. It's about being a disciple. It's about listening to the invitation of the Lord Jesus who says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come on, follow me. That's Paul's message, and he doesn't want any distractions. Although, from time to time, it's convenient to pull out his Roman passport. So that's the first thing that we learned about Paul since we've arrived in Europe in this series that we're doing in the book of Acts. A second thing that we discovered, and this was just last time in chapter 18, we discovered that Paul has a trade. Just like my former colleague, the professor of history, who is also an auto mechanic, well, Paul is this learned rabbi 
who's also a tent maker. He's got this very practical trade, this way of making a living. And think about it, where in southern Greece might you go if you are a tent maker? Well, of all the places, you could certainly go to Corinth, which is often called the Vegas of the ancient world. Corinth, this bustling port city with, with lots of traffic and some big athletic events periodically that have a great need for temporary housing. So for a tent maker, that's one of the reasons perhaps why Paul ends up in Corinth at the beginning of Acts 18. But again, thinking of things that you learn about someone after the fact, we only discover in retrospect when Paul later confesses that when he showed up in Corinth, it was in weakness and fear and with much trembling. As we read Acts 18, we wouldn't have got that. Everything looks fine on the outside. But no, Paul says, I showed up in weakness and fear and in much trembling, he says. How many times has somebody asked you, hey, how are you? And really, you're doing lousy, but you say, I'm fine. Paul's honesty here is not only refreshing, I think it's encouraging as well. We can often think of Paul as this superhero, and, and to be sure, he's incredibly gifted with, with great energy and passion for the kingdom, and we love and admire that. But really, the superhero aspect of Paul's life is the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. We discover, in fact, that Paul can be as frail and as vulnerable as the rest of us. I mean, as we survey the recent liniments of the story, perhaps he's weak because he was beaten to a pulp in Philippi. Maybe he's fearful because he's recently just had to escape from Berea and, you know, escape with an inch of his life. It could be that he's trembling because he's just addressed the famous Areopagus in Athens. Only a hundred or so people perhaps gathered, but it was a daunting occasion. And Paul spoke to them about the one God who's beyond any kind of temples built by human beings. But this one God has great purpose for humanity. We're all created in God's image. And Paul rather soberingly tells them that we're all going to face judgment one day. You see, we're responsible for our actions and we're going to be held accountable. And this was quite a speech at the Areopagus. And now, not too long later, he arrives in Vegas, or he arrives in Corinth with the same kind of message. Not one that's going to be immediately popular and certainly not one that was politically correct then or now, and maybe that's why he's feeling a bit weak, a bit fearful. Maybe he's feeling a bit overwhelmed. And if that's the case, then we're guessing that it must have been a major relief for Paul to find out that just as he arrived in Corinth, God had already done a lot of preparation in anticipation of that visit. God had already done a lot of preparation, getting ready for a good work in that city. You see, not only had God prepared the way for the citizens of Corinth to hear the message of grace, but he had already brought some important team members ahead of Paul to this very same city. And last time we studied this passage, we read about Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were Jewish Christians living in Rome, but they were expelled during a uh, a rampage of the emperor Claudius. And as tent makers, they had to up and leave, and perhaps they felt it was expeditious to make their way to Corinth. And it's here 
that they meet up with the Apostle Paul, and it's here that a beautiful truth unfolds. You see, all the disappointment and the upheaval of this couple getting expelled from the city of Rome, God worked all of that, we discover in retrospect, into something good. Some of you might remember this past summer, we studied the story of Joseph and his brothers. And there's some awful events in that story and some pretty nasty circumstances. And yet at the end of the story in Genesis chapter 50, what does Joseph say? What does he say to his brothers? You designed evil against me, he says, but God designed it for something good to do what's now being done. And that's the saving of many lives, powerful words from the Joseph story. And I think it's applicable here in Acts 18. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila and Paul didn't even realize it at the time, but it must have been clear in retrospect that the evil and devious designs of Claudius were in fact being transformed by God into something that's going to result in the saving of many lives. And as things end up, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half. That's a pretty long time in the chronology of the book of Acts. And a lot of lives are changed. Lots of things happen. There's courtroom dramas. There's conversions. But I think one of my favorite moments, and we looked at this last time, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision in Acts chapter 18. Don't be scared. Jesus comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking and, and don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one's going to attack you and no one's going to harm you because I've got many people, Jesus says, in this city. Powerful words, and that's probably one reason why there were so many good things happening in Corinth with people getting saved in the ancient, East, uh, the ancient equivalent of Vegas. So why, we ask, why would Paul up and leave here in the middle of Acts chapter 18? Interpreters have puzzled over these events in chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. But you and I are going to listen to this passage, and we're going to see if we can't discern a larger pattern. Listen close. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. But then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow that he'd taken. Well, they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. When they invited him to spend some more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it's God's will, he said. And so then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, so that's, a, that's actually a long trip, Ephesus to Caesarea, my goodness, hundreds of miles, that would take quite some time by sea. When he landed then at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, he greeted the church, and then he went back down to Antioch. So we've just covered an awful lot of the Mediterranean region in those verses. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul then set out from there and he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, as we read that passage, you probably noticed several things going on here. I mean, first, what's up with Paul's vow? The haircut? Sencria is a, one of the two ports on the, this one's on the east side of Corinth. 
Apparently there's a big statue, or there was a big statue of Isis there. So Paul gets a haircut in the shadow of Isis, some sort of salon near there. Scholars actually aren't exactly sure. Some say the Nazarite vow, some say another kind of obligation that Paul as a Jew would have been um, responsible for. Well, the simple truth is we don't know, and Luke doesn't tell us. So perhaps there's something else going on here. Perhaps all we're being alerted to is that Paul's practicing a certain kind of spiritual discipline, like we all can do. In fact, maybe that's why the reason, uh, or that is the reason, rather, why we get this attention on the vow in this section of Acts 18. Maybe we're reminded in the midst of all this bustling activity, sharing the gospel and doing so many great things for humanity, that we have a chance to reconnect with God and to have a relationship. And this relationship is something that we need to constantly maintain. Maybe the greater need is for you and I walking with God before we go out and meet those great needs in the city, or even at the same time, if we cultivate that relationship with God, perhaps that is our energizing possibility, just like it is with Paul. Either way, it's a reminder that as we proceed in our kingdom work, whatever sphere that we're in, we're reminded, like Paul, don't neglect our own relationship and walk with God. Remember Jesus in Mark chapter 1? It was early in the morning, it was still dark, and Jesus arose. He went out, and he departed to a, a lonely place, and there he was praying. So, if Jesus and Paul need to cultivate their relationship with God, I'm thinking I probably need to as well. And maybe it would be wise for you to take that seriously too. I mean, I'm often told that burnout takes place when we're not being refueled, or refilled, renewed, refreshed. There's a great passage in Isaiah, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. The Hebrew word for wait is connected to that for hope. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So if Paul needs to be strengthened in God, then I'm guessing it's the same for you and I today. And once he's strengthened, then attention can uh, turn to the great city of Ephesus. It's estimated to have a population of a quarter million people at this point in history, making it one of the largest cities in the world at the time. Ephesus is a provincial capital. It's a commercial center. There's lots of action to the point that Ephesus has been compared to NYC, to the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps, large population, an affluent upper class, and because they're so busy in Ephesus, they really don't have time to think about God or take seriously the idea that good news has arrived. And so we're starting to think that if you could share the gospel in Ephesus, well, maybe you can share it anywhere. And perhaps that's why Paul then ends up there in Acts chapter 18, where you may have heard and almost been surprised that he gets a good reception. I mean, there's peaceful dialogue, reasonable debate. They invite him to stay longer. He doesn't get beat up. Good things are happening. Why? Why then would he just up and leave? I mean, come on, Paul. This is the Big Apple. You need to be there. Before doing much of anything in Ephesus. It seems that Paul is keen to complete what we can call his second missionary tour. As he gets on a boat, arrives at Caesarea, goes to Jerusalem, and then to Antioch. I mean, he completes that second missionary tour. And it's interesting. Maybe he needed to 
go back to Jerusalem. Maybe he needed to go back to this great city of uh, spiritual vibrancy. Maybe he needed to go back to Antioch, where it all started. We're not sure, but he completes the tour, and as it turns out, that was a very strategic move. You see, Ephesus is very much in God's plan, and just as God used a host of circumstances to bring the gospel to Corinth, so God's about to do the same thing in Ephesus. And in fact, God's plans here involve a fascinating new character. I want you to listen now to chapter 18, verses 24 to 28, where we're going to be introduced to this new character and hear what this character does. It starts in line 24, where we're told that meanwhile, so meanwhile, well, Paul finishes the second missionary tour and then begins his journey back on the third tour that we'll talk about in a sec. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, a Jewish native of Alexandria named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew about the baptism of John. But he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited them, him to their home, and they paused and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. Well, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's southern Greece, where Corinth is, the brothers and the sisters encouraged him, and they wrote the disciples there to welcome him. So, when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, this is really interesting, this character that we meet, Apollos. Did you notice that he's from Alexandria? That's a pretty cool place to be from. Alexandria is in northern Egypt, right on the coast. In fact, it was named Alexandria because Alexander the Great named it after himself. Humble guy that he is. One of the most famous sites, and this is on my bucket list, to visit the great library of Alexandria, probably the greatest library in the entire ancient world. It's on my bucket list, but it'll be rather hard to fulfill that because... It was accidentally burned to the ground by Julius Caesar in 48 BC, and that's really annoying. And I'm going to remember that the next time that I have a Caesar salad that I can't visit again, the Library of Alexandria. But something really interesting happened there. Did you notice that Apollos knew the scriptures? There's a longstanding tradition that the Greek Septuagint, that is the Old Testament in Greek that was used by the early church, was translated in Alexandria. So it had a certain reputation for the scriptures. And so Apollos, as a native of Alexandria, would have grown up in this great tradition. So he knew the scriptures, he was gifted, and he was eloquent. But I think my favorite thing about this character is that he was teachable. Did you notice that? Aquila and Priscilla take him aside and they explain the way of God more adequately. And clearly, Apollos was open to the idea so despite his great gifts, he's eminently teachable. And that, to me, is such an encouragement today. Be more like Apollo. So always be open to God teaching and showing you new things. And maybe pray periodically for an Apollos to come into a certain situation and speak with fervor and with eloquence. We read this story, and it becomes a reminder that even effective believers with 
great gifts need to be more open to the power of the Holy Spirit, to move beyond self-sufficiency to a new dependency on the power of God rather than just merely rely on those good gifts that they've been given. You see, the Holy Spirit can activate those very same good gifts. And so, I suppose you could say that one of the messages of Acts 18 for you and I right now is that being teachable includes being open to more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the testimony of Apollos. And as it turns out, there's a powerful coincidence. You see, just as Apollos moves out, just as he moves from Ephesus and goes to Corinth, where Paul was, so now Paul comes back to Ephesus, to the Big Apple of Asia Minor. It's a really interesting set of synergies. Let's listen to chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. Well, we'll discover exactly that. You see, chapter 19 starts with, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul then took the road through the interior, this is now the start of the third missionary tour, from Antioch through uh, upper northern Asia Minor, takes the road through the interior and arrives likewise at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they answered. We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what baptism did you then receive? Well, John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, look, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, to believe in Jesus. Well, on hearing this, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there was about 12 men in all. Isn't that amazing? 12 men in all, suggesting that this is almost kind of a, a new Pentecost experience. Acts chapter 2 gives us the day of Pentecost. Likewise, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Samaria, and now here in Ephesus, the big apple of the ancient world, we've got a new set of disciples ready to go and to infiltrate the world and to bring the message of the good news. So again, while Apollos is in Ephesus and then moves to Corinth, Paul is on his third missionary tour and arrives in Ephesus. And I suppose we can conclude from that that it has been God's will that Paul end up back in this vibrant and strategic city, where, as we just read, he finds these disciples who are halfway there. They were off to a good start, but they need to reach the finish line. You know, a, a famous European theologian once told me that the most underappreciated and misunderstood member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I, I think that that's true. Now, listen, being filled with the Spirit. There have been some excesses perhaps in the past century, but there's also been some catastrophic ignoring of the power of the Holy Spirit too. And after 20 years of ministry, here's my personal opinion. I think it might be a good idea for some of us to press reset. Whatever we've heard or, or, or whatever things have happened, I think we need a new power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think we need it for our kids for our neighborhoods, for our campuses, for our workplaces. We might even need it for our churches. The influx, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? There's biblical warrant for doing so. Because these first episodes in Ephesus, 
with Apollos, and then with this handful of disciples here in Ephesus, the New York City, the ancient Med, one of the biggest cities of the day, what we see emphasized in this passage in different ways is that there's all this pressing need, and yet things begin to happen when the Holy Spirit gets involved. That's the truth of God's word this morning. Last passage, last part of the chapter we're going to look at today, lines 8 to 10, listen close, because after this interaction with this group of halfway disciples, line 8, Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now some of them, it's true, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly they maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two whole years, so that the entire Jewish community and those Greeks who lived in the province of Asia all heard the word of the Lord. I mean, this is amazing. The lecture hall of Tyrannus. You know, scholars have done a lot of research, but it's tantalizing, as John Stott says. We really don't know that much about Tyrannus. Seems to be a poet or a philosopher who makes a good living because he has this hall, but that's an odd name. Why would you name your child Tyrannus, which means tyrant or despotic dictator? Not many parents would do that. Of course, it does explain why the lecture hall is available, because, I mean, what students would want to hang out with Professor Tyrant, Professor Despotic? You know what I mean. Paul rents this hall, and they have daily discussions for a couple of years to the point that everybody hears the message of grace. I mean, for somebody listening today, I think this is a powerful story. Having discussions with people, meeting them where they're at. I mean, surely, surely the church in our day can do a little more in that sphere. I hope you've noticed, but there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions, and and sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes we don't have sound bites. Sometimes they're complex. People are asking about critical race theory. They're asking about gender. They're asking about identity. They're asking about political and cultural upheavals. They're asking some hard questions. So what's the Christian response? I mean, we may not have easy answers, but we each have a couple of ears. We can listen. We can dialogue. We can come alongside. We can create forums and safe spaces for people to ask honest questions, and we can have real dialogue Paul did that for two years in Ephesus. That's an awful long time in the chronology of Acts, and yet it was profoundly effective, and all kinds of people heard the message of grace. I'm going to hand it back to Pastor Greg in a moment, but but, but let me just share. As, As I thought about this, I thought we could have hardly picked a better passage to reflect on today than Acts 18 and 19, a passage that encourages us to prioritize our relationship with God in these days. I'm not asking you to make vows, but I am asking you to make an investment of time, of energy, into your personal connection with our risen Lord. And here's a passage that shows us how all kinds of people are being used by God in powerful ways to reach cities that you may not think have a chance to hear the message of grace. And yet they do. They hear it in Ephesus. And I'm wondering If we come together, if they can't hear that same message of grace in another provincial capital 
even in these days. I think that's worth pausing for a moment, and I think that's worth praying about. Why don't we bow together wherever we are, and why don't we pray, Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for its richness, and for the encouragement that you provide as we hear the scriptures and as we ask for wisdom to live as faithful disciples today. Lord, there's a lot of people in our lives that are asking hard questions these days. They're asking about evil and suffering and violence and identity. But, you know, these episodes in Corinth and in Ephesus, they challenge us at Brunswick Street to to think afresh about how we can share the message of the gospel in all kinds of circumstances and that we can persevere while trusting that you, our God, are always at work in every fractured and hurting human heart. We remember today the words of Paul's vision, Lord Jesus, where you say, don't be afraid, I'm with you, and I have many people in this city. And we claim that word today, and we ask that you continue to lead and to guide us, because in your name we pray, amen. Amen.